Psalm 79. It is found on page 490 in your, I want to, I always call them Pew Bibles because that's been part of our culture. Um, and if you also uh, feel so inclined, um, you can put your bulletin or a finger in Hebrews chapter 12. That is something that we're going to look at towards the end of this morning's sermon. Hebrews chapter 12. So the reality is life is hard. And if you are in denial, we can probably point you to a good counselor or come talk to me afterwards. Because the reality is life is hard. The Psalms are very honest. And God is good. This is why I love the Psalms so much. The Psalms, they help us deal with the reality of life in all of its most raw and painful moments. They give us voice and they give us verse to to the deepest wrestlings that we have in our souls. And they point us, they always point us back to God, serving somehow as a bridge. They serve as a bridge between the pain of life along with the power of God. And so I've wanted to spend extended time in these psalms because I know that all of us will experience deep pain at some point in our life. And if you haven't experienced deep pain at some point in your life yet, my friends, I I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you will at some point in your life experience some sort of deep pain. And I know that that the time to build up the thea, a good, robust theology and the understanding of suffering, the time to do that is before the suffering actually takes place. I, I want to put it in your hands so that you can kind of marinate in it, wrestle through it before it all hits the fan and you go, where is God? And you feel like you have to abandon your faith because He's not good. Good pastors and good churches teach their people how to suffer. You have to know how the Bible actually handles this subject. But you also have to know about yourself. I've seen two extremes when it comes to pain. Two extremes. The first extreme is denial. When it comes to pain, there are some people who do not want to acknowledge how how much they're really struggling and they put on their Sunday face and look really like put together. And it's like, no, everything's okay, It's wonderful. No, it's all right. God is good. And they're in total denial that there's really pain and how hard the situation is. But then there's the other side. There's denial. And then there is the the dissection. In the dissection, those are the people who are guilty of constantly examining the reason behind the problems of their life, and they overanalyze and they overthink and are constantly looking for the answer to why. Just constantly asking why. And they're struggling. Denial and dissection make mistakes in excess. They're struggling in excess. Living your circumstances is not necessary. Living above your circumstances isn't necessarily uh, living in denial. 
asking what God might be doing or even if there's a direct cause for suffering may be a good thing. The problem is always taking things too far. So this distinction is important uh, because most of the psalms that we've looked at so far assume that you are somehow in an innocent position of suffering. Things around you are, are difficult and you are an innocent bystander receiving the effects of a broken world. But Psalm 79 is different. Psalm 79, I, I like this psalm because it's an important as well as looking at Hebrews uh, 12 later on, because it looks at the subject of suffering while in the midst of being disciplined. All of us love talking about discipline, right? But that's the subject for this morning. So my friends, uh, Psalm 79, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word, knowing that these are God's good words for you this morning. Psalm 79. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance and they have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. And there is no one to bury them. They have become a taunt to our neighbors. Or we have become a taunt to our neighbors. Mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his inhabitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. For we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever from generation to To generation, we will recount your praise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I I need to remind you that the Psalms are not just a book of poetry that people would read 
in their times of desperation or their times of joy. The Psalms were actually a psalter. It was a, a book that the people of Israel, God's people, would sing. Now, can you imagine singing some of these verses? Um, they have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of, of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. There was no one to bury them. Praise be to Jesus! You know, this, these are songs that they would actually sing. But this song that they are singing is not like, honestly, any of the songs that we sing. This psalm introduces a song that would be sung about being disciplined. About being disciplined. The, the suffering that comes along for the purpose of dealing with their actual sinful actions. My guess is when you heard that phrase or that title, How Long, O Lord, in the text, you're assuming that it refers to some kind of innocent suffering. But that is not the case here. This phrase is the groaning of a man who is dealing with the heavy pressure of God's discipline on him. In other words, his hard questions relates to how long he must suffer under God's painful and heavy and heated correction. How long? Now when we think about discipline, sometimes we think about you go sit in your timeout chair. If you're two years old, you're going to sit in your timeout chair for two minutes because that's all you can handle. And, or maybe if you're 15, you're going to be grounded for two weeks. This is nothing like that. This is multiplied exponentially, this, this kind of des discipline. And this is an, in, a, an extremely, enormously important issue. It's a question that even there's times that I have asked this. It sounded like, and I won't give you my own personal uh, descriptions, but it sounded like, did ca God cause blank because of some sin in my life? Did God cause whatever it is because of some sin in my life? Do you, do you feel the weight of that question? Have you felt the weight of that question? Did God cause the brokenness of my marriage because of some sin in my life? Did God cause a stillborn death because of something in my life? Did my house go into foreclosure because of this in my life? Do you see how loaded it is? When you're going through some level of suffering, I, I think you can't help but ask this question. And sometimes, do you even dare to ask that question? God, is this happening because of something some sinful action in my life? And Psalm 79 is helpful because it provides a different angle on honest questions. So let's see what the text is saying. First, the first thing is that there are really tough consequences going on. 
The first four verses identify the challenging and the painful circumstances that the psalmist and the entire nation of Israel are experiencing. It's ugly. There's devastation. There's desecration. There is death. There's all kinds of shame and disappointment. And it appears that Israel has been invaded from the outside and Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's been ransacked. The destruction is enormous. You see that in the first four verses. It's even the feeling that these, this outside pagan nation is taunting God and taunting them. They have this, like, ha, 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 we're showing you. And don't miss these emotionally loaded and shame-filled metaphors. The picture here is a destruction, the kind of destruction that leaves behind dead bodies, unburied, to be picked apart by animals, the spilling of blood that is as common as water. And the effect of, of this kind of discipline, this devastation, is that it is extremely humbling for God's people. They have received the firm rod of correction from their Lord. It's humbling. It's painful. A little bit of the historical uh, background to this is helpful because it, it helps us understand what's going on. And so Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, gives us, kind of lays out what really is going on in this time. It most, most likely is the occasion of the Babylonian destruction of 586 B.C. Israel, as a nation, was previously divided between the north and south kingdom. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian invasion around 722 B.C. And the southern kingdom fell 136 years later. And thus began the Babylonian captivity that lasted 70 years. And this captivity was in response. This captivity, these 70 years. Man, if you get grounded for two weeks, it's nothing in comparison to 70 years. The destruction of your city and the death that is found around you. 70 years. And Jeremiah the prophet speaks for God in this regard, about what has happened. And, it, and you can see it in Jeremiah chapter 8. Even the stork in the heavens knows our times, and the turtle dove and the swallow and the crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. How can you say, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. They rejected. They turned their back on the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the priest... Everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, 
They shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. These people, when they sinned, did not even blush. Oh, how true for us. Right? Do we, do we struggle? When, 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 we, when we sin, do we blush anymore? Or is it like, oh, well, you know, thank God for the grace of God. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Jesus will forgive me on this one. But there's a, a, such a, a hardness of heart at this point where they keep on sinning to the point where they, they don't even blush anymore. And the psalmist is lamenting the difficulty and the divinely orchestrated, designed kind of consequences that are right in front of him. But you can move on to verses 5 through 7. Verses 5 through 7 says there is a conflicted means by which God is bringing about his punishment. The death and destruction were bad, but it was also challenging to see this outside pagan, unsaved nation come in as the means by which God brought his people to their knees. Outsiders. It it was quite conflicting to see that God used such a wicked nation as his vehicle of discipline. Verses 5 through 7. How long, O Lord? How long will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you. On the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they've devoured us. They've laid us to waste. Pour Not on us, but on them. So the tension here is not about the actual suffering, but it is the fact that God is using a seemingly evil people to accomplish his purposes the effect of this is such that it looks as if god's people have lost and evil has won and god appears to be on the side of babylon and that feels conflicting are you serious god uses wicked people and bad events and that is a challenging thing and sometimes sometimes people try to resolve that by saying that god allows things to happen god allows things to happen and and while that is absolutely true in this case god is not just allowing it god is actually clearly behind it god is behind this he is empowering an evil nation to be victorious over his people. Listen to how God positions uh, this with, his, with Jeremiah when the prophet is asked by the king of Judah to seek, uh, you know, ask God for some kind of deliverance. This is found in Jeremiah 21. So, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside your walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of the city. I myself will fight against you. Those are strong words. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a strong arm. And often that phrase right there is a comforting word with an outstretched 
hand and a strong arm. I will love you. But in this, in this case, it is love, but it is a, a very difficult love. Because this outstretched hand and strong arm is in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, the king of Judah, who is asking for deliverance, and his servants and the people of the city who survived the pestilence, the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. In other words, we're going to keep on going for a little while. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. This doesn't sound like a, just a casual kind of thing where God allows it. No, this is God's hand is in the midst of this. God is behind these events as conflicted as it may seem. And the psalmist is crying out in the midst of this saying, how long? How long? But we see also a, a movement to this next piece in verses 8 through 10 that there, there seems to be some kind of a, a humble repentance that is going on. Then these next verses is an appeal to, to God for forgiveness and for mercy. We have no idea if the psalmist himself was a part of the problem or whether or not he is a part of the God-fearing remnant. We have no idea where really his heart is and his level of involvement. But he identifies. He identifies with the collective sinfulness and the waywardness of God's people. Notice that the psalmist appeals in God's name and His glory as the basis of His mercy. He's appealing to God's name. He's appealing to God's glory as the basis for any kind of mercy. In other words, He doesn't ask because they are so broken and we're so tired of discipline. He's not asking because, man, God, this is just really difficult. But he is asking because of God's greatness. He knows something about his God. Take note of this because it is one of the great benefits of discipline. It brings you back to what is really valuable and what is really glorious. Humility birthed through hardship. Humility, birthed through hardship, helps you see and value God's holiness. 7-8, through eight, do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation. For the glory of your name, so this help is coming from because of for your glory. For your glory. Come speedily. Rescue us. This is what suffering does. Even if the suffering is because of the sinful actions of other people. 
Suffering reveals our frailty. Suffering also brings to the surface sinfulness in areas that we never recognized before. Is that true for you? When you are suffering, all of a sudden you go, oh wow, oh wow, I can see it now. It kind of lifts the fog. You might find yourself in a fog, but it lifts a fog about the reality of your sinfulness. And it also, in that moment of suffering and pain and pressure from the outside, and you can feel God's hand, it crystallizes your understanding of your need for God. In that moment of pressure and pain, there is this need to call out to God. But even more, it reminds us that the ultimate purpose in life is designed by God and it is designed for God. Suffering reminds us that life is not about our plans, our comfort, our agenda. It reminds us externally that we are not God. And that it shows us internally how we are really unlike Him. Suffering brings us, brings to the service our need for a Savior. And for those who know Jesus, it shows us the remaining sediments in our life of self-sufficiency. That's what suffering does. Have you ever been in science class and you got a beaker and after a while everything kind of it kind of clears, muddy water clears and in the bottom you find the little sediments? Suffering kind of does this. And all of a sudden the sediments come up again. At first it looked drinkable or it looked clear, but in reality it just settles and suffering kind of brings to the top again all of our self-sufficiency. But this psalm ends in, with something hopeful. Verses 11 through 13. It talks about this future hope. The psalm ends with a, a, a final appeal of kind of a hope-filled praise. It, it's remarkable and it's, in, it's instructive. And it, I'm thankful that he ends this way. Remarkable because he, this man is in a tremendous amount of pain. 70 years of pain. Don't forget about those first four verses. That is the context for his, his pain. So it's remarkable that in the midst of his pain, he is, he is finding hope. But it's also instructive because this is where biblical understanding of our biblical understanding of discipline leads. It ultimately leads to worship. Discipline should Lead to worship. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, Psalm 23, right? We'll give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. In this moment, it feels like God is completely done with His people. As if He has condemned them to a kind of permanent hell. But this is not the case. 
This is a very helpful point to note here because it is the basis of hope. God, this God that they are uh, talking to, that this psalm is referring to, this God made a covenant with His people. They are His people. And He is going to use this pagan nation of Babylon to bring them back to Himself. So while they are feeling the pains of discipline, there is still hope. There's hope for these people. And Jeremiah 29 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For This is the context for that coffee cup verse. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and for a hope. So if you ever use that stinking verse out of context, uh, I am going to kick you out, put you, no, I'm going to first put you under church discipline and then kick you out. Use it correctly. This is talking about God's divine discipline while they are in Babylon, in captivity. This is what it's talking about. Then you will call, uh, oh, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. Do not miss this. The discipline of God does not mean that He has broken His promise. Not at all. His promise is sure. His promise is steadfast, even in the midst of great pain. And the discipline here is part of His divinely designed plan for the ultimate deliverance of his people. You could say it this way. Hard is hard. But hard is not bad. Hard is hard. So in the midst of all this, man, hard is hard. And immediately, what do we want to do in the midst of hard? We want to say, this is terrible. We should get out of it. We should jettison. But no, this hardness, this difficulty is not bad because it is ultimate purpose is to restore you and to make you more like Christ. And so the psalmist ends his cry of how long with a very confident, promise-oriented kind of thought. We... We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. How how forever? From generation to generation to generation to generation. We will recount your praise. That's an amazing thing to say when you are in the middle of hard circumstances. But there's still another promise at play here. God gives it to Jeremiah when he is struggling with God's purposes and plans. It's not at the end of his suffering. It's in the midst of his suffering. And what Jeremiah doesn't know and what the people of Israel do not know and what you might not fully know and understand is that God's purposes 
are beyond what we can even imagine. Okay, some of you need to hear that this morning. In the midst of your suffering, you might be questioning God's plans, you might be questioning His promises, and you just want to get out of it. But God's purposes go beyond that. Listen to what He says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32. Maybe Jeremiah might be the next uh, thing for me to preach through. But Now thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword and by famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I have drove them in my anger and wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant and that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought upon this great disaster upon my people, so will I bring upon them all, all the good that I promised them. Don't miss that statement. The comfort and hope in the midst of difficult circumstances is that God is the one who is ultimately behind all of them. But He is true. He is, friends, He is true to His Word. He is faithful to His promises. And He is worthy of all your trust in the midst of all the pain. He is worthy of it all. Pretty soon, when we're going through communion, we are going to be singing a song, Is He Worthy? The answer is yes. And we should sing songs like that with a great big resounding yes. Our voices lifted up or maybe on our knees because in the past week or in a season of life, we might be going, I'm not so sure He's worthy. Does that sound like something you would pray? Are you able to see the hard circumstances through this lens? Can you see your hardship through this paradigm? I, I have met people who have been in bad situations and they can see every bad situation through the lens of this has to be fair. It has to make sense to me. It has to be over soon. And God must not be behind this. And the problem is that there's no hope there. None. And I know that there are other challenges with believing that God is ultimately behind all the events of life, even the painful ones. And there are divinely appointed purposes besides, behind everything 
that happens. And I know that this is a perspective that doesn't solve every problem or answer every question. But in the end, discipline at any kind of level is hopeful only if God is actively and personally orchestrating it. It's in your kindness, Lord, that you lead me to repentance. That's a prayer that we have for our children when we discipline them. That even in the the heaviness of discipline, it's our kindness in the midst of that that leads them ultimately to a place of repentance. Now, I've, I've got Hebrews 12 here, and I'm just wondering, I'm looking at time, but friends, I think this is important. So if you've got Hebrews 12 popped open, I think it's 1,008 in your pew Bible. Here we can see that there are painful yet loving purposes in the work of God. And we, we should be thankful that there are other texts in the New Testament that bring this, uh, this issue out with even greater clarity. Sometimes we look at Old Testament stuff and go, oh, that's an Old Testament thing, right? That's the, the angry God of the Old Testament where there's all kinds of bloodiness out there. We just stick in the New Testament. Well, let me see how there, there's a bridge between the old and the new. And God is consistent. In the book of Hebrews, we find the author providing, providing a kind of advance encouragement for a group of believers about suffering. And here, the, the author of Hebrews is speaking to a people who have not yet experienced persecution and death. So the author is giving them advance encouragement before it hits the fan. They haven't shed any blood yet. And in the coming hardship, he is giving them the following instructions. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you, my son? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord... Maybe we should read that together. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So fathers, if you are, (laughs) this is an instruction for you, just for your own family. If you are choosing not to discipline your children, it's saying that you do not love your children. Back to the sermon. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they have disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness for the moment all discipline seems seems what painful rather than pleasant if you ever administer discipline that's pleasant something's wrong but latter it yields the peaceful heart fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it notice what he's saying here Don't be discouraged when hardship comes. He's saying discipline is actually a token of God's love. 
And under, understanding discipline in advance helps us to endure in the midst of discipline. And discipline, he's saying discipline, while it is difficult, it is for our ultimate and our spiritual good. The book of Hebrews is filled with all kinds of warnings about starting out spiritually strong and then falling away. And this book regularly calls out to a professing believer to prove, to actually prove that you are real by enduring all the way to the end. And discipline serves that purpose. It, it is divinely, a divinely designed hardship to keep rooting out those areas of sinfulness in our life, in all of us. And it keeps pushing us toward a, a, a Christ dependency and a Christ likeness. The hope of discipline is that God is using everything, including discipline, for our good. It's making us more Christ-like. So how long, O oh God, is an honest cry of a man or woman under the weight of hard circumstances who is clinging to the promises of God? So in light of what we've seen in Psalm 79 and Hebrews 12, let me just summarize quickly some, some thoughts about how, how to work this out. First of all, and it's not going to be up here, so maybe I'll post them later. The Bible's perspective on hard but loving purposes in discipline only applies to those who are believers. I, I want you to understand that this is written to the people of God and for the people of God to understand their loving Father who is exercising discipline. But this does not apply to everyone. Discipline needs to be distinguished from condemnation and punishment. There's a difference. And the difference between these two categories is the re our, one's relationship to Jesus. And the message of the Bible is that Jesus takes the punishment for sin that we deserved. He removes condemnation from us. Jesus has done that. The good news is that God counts Jesus' death as a sufficient payment for those who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But, but, for those who do not receive Jesus Christ, who do not respond to His kindness, His death doesn't apply to you. And if that's you, if you have not responded to God's kindness, His mercy, His love, His faithfulness, if you have not responded to Christ's death for you it means that you are presently under God's judgment and your destiny is eternal condemnation therefore the whole concept of loving discipline doesn't apply to you but secondly we can see that God poured out his wrath for sin on Jesus and discipline should be distinguished from condemnation and judgment this is an important distinguish about condemnation and judgment because they are entirely different than discipline. Condemnation is the justified retribution of a holy God against an unholy, sinful people. God's wrath is upon those who are unholy. The aim is punishment, and His punishment is terrible. And if you do not respond to it in this life, that punishment is 
eternal. Discipline, though, is hard and it is painful. But ultimately, the end game is for our good. Condemnation is is harmful justice. Discipline is loving instruction. And this is extremely important to understand since you might be tempted to think that in the midst of a painful trial, God is against you. The reality is God is always for you. His child. So don't confuse the pain of discipline with the pain of condemnation. Thirdly, some discipline is directly linked to cause and effect relationship with sin. There's a cause and effect relationship. There are some disciplined moments that you have a clear cause and effect dynamic. If you will, you might think of this as a disciplinary kind of consequences. You, You did something wrong. Welcome to the club. We have all done things wrong. We have all sinned. Right? Right? All of us had. And God is, He has graciously covered over your sin. But there are consequences to your sin. He does not remove the consequences. So if you have been greedy and you have overbought and you, have, you are in debt, you have gone through foreclosure, you have filed for bankruptcy, God has covered over your sin if you have repented of that. He, has reco- he is, man, He is gracious, He is kind, but He has not removed the consequences of that. If you have been caught in adultery, my friends, He, he, he can forgive the sin of adultery. He is capable, but He is not going to Remove the consequences of that. That can you may experience that your entire life. There's examples all throughout that. So how do you know when uh, when discipline is for a specific sin in your life? Well, since you are neither uh, since neither you or God is served by knowing uh, when they are linked. Sometimes the answer is simply, you know, you know, this is a consequence of the sin in my life. As much as you want the consequence to be removed, it's, it's a reminder. It's a reminder. And that might be a painful reminder. But it's there for your good. Fourthly, all, all discipline has a, all hardship has a disciplining kind of effect in that it kind of surfaces the sin, the hidden sin at varying levels and, and so that it might deal kind of to produce a more Christ-likeness. At the end of the day, all discipline is because of sin and not necessarily a uh, specific cause and effect kind of sin, but maybe an indwelling sin that still kind of hangs out in your life and it hinders you from really becoming more Christ-like. An indwelling sin. Every hardship is part of God's overall plan to kind of surface what we do not see in ourselves. And there's, there's nothing better than hardship to reveal indwelling sin in our life. Difficulties 
illnesses, disappointments, challenges, conflicts, and a myriad of other kinds of circumstances, when they bump into our lives, when they kind of hit the beaker of our lives, what happens? All the settlement, sediment and ugliness and the sin in our lives kind of pops up again. This is why, that is why the Bible views suffering as hard, but yet as a positive thing. And this is all, should also bring hope to our lives and a freedom to the life for those who know Jesus Christ because there is no pain that is not pointless. The pain that he has placed in your life is purposeful to remove sin in your life, to draw you more closely to him. And here's the last thing. God is able and willing to use all things, good and evil, for divinely designed and righteous purposes. He uses all things. The, re- the really beautiful thing is that, Jesus, that God is sovereignly over everything, including the good and bad things. While Satan might be active, the active agent in evil, Satan himself is not free. He is a created being. He unknowingly serves God's purposes and he actually unknowingly aids in the accomplishment of God's plan. You stupid Satan. You don't even know what you're doing. You're helping out God. You think that you're distracting us and God's going, (laughs) I've got a master plan. And it's for your good. And that is a liberating truth that brings so much hope because that means that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that happens which is outside of God's power to use it for our good and His glory. So the implication, my friends, is stunning. It's stunning. It means that you can say, how long, O Lord, while also saying that we will be your people the sheep of your pasture. It means that we can say confidently, hard is hard, but it is not bad. Let's pray.